Welcome to the Techmo Podcast, where we talk all things tech and startup in the Denton community. My name is Kyle Taylor. And I'm David Bruno. Let's get started. Welcome to the Techmo Podcast. We're sitting here with Dave Sims. Oh, I almost called you David Bruno, but we were also here with David Bruno. That's me. <laughs> that would have been okay and nobody would have known. <laughs> so close. Uh, we're hitting, sitting here with Dave. Dave is a uh, board member of Techmill. He is also a, a super awesome software Ruby guy who does music as well. That's uh, the subtitle on my CV. That's <laughs> the exact wording. So thanks for being on the podcast, Dave. Uh, sure. So, so let's, uh, David. Yeah. So, uh, my normal first question is what brought you to Denton? Um, uh, uh, marriage. <laughs> um, my wife, uh, came here to study music and, uh, and, uh, so ne- of necessity I-, I came with her. Actually we should, well, we, when, when we got married, she was living in Denton. So, mm. um, it, it was sort of necessary that I also locate to Denton. So you've been here. So how long have you been in Denton? About 21 years. About 21 yeah. years. Uh-huh. So, so for your first 21 years, <laughs> whatever it is before that, I don't actually know how old you are. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm right though. Hmm? All right. Yeah. There, there are 21 years prior to that <laughs> at least. <laughs> So before I'm, not, I'm just saying I could have I can I can drink I'm of drinking age <laughs> twice. Okay. Um, so before that, I mean, what were what were you doing uh, before you came here? Um, stu- I was in school uh, mm-hmm. studying. I, you know, I studied computer science, and then I switched out and studied. I think I studied music for about five minutes, and then switched over to uh, philosophy. Obviously. <laughs> And then, so yeah, with the job prospects as hot as they were in philosophy, I uh, ended up in computers. Oh, I don't know. Time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming back. It's going to be a, a philosophy boom, a philosophy yeah. bubble. So I didn't know that you studied philosophy, which which now looking back at all the times I've heard you talk makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> Just explains a Dave lot. Dave the poet over here. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> it's even stranger since this is the second time we've recorded him, and I think he told us the first time too. So it's, really, yeah, I don't remember it the first time either. Uh, I, I think I think I was stressing out too much. Probably the yeah. first time yeah. I was like sitting on my computer, just like none of this is working. <laughs> Computers are hard and stressful <laughs> and panic-inducing. So. Yeah, for the listeners, we recorded Dave once for forty-five minutes, and then we had to totally scrap the whole thing. So uh, Dave is the reason we actually have this super snazzy uh, setup that you can't see in front of us, but. Uh, so thanks for doing that, Dave. Yeah, I broke it all the first time. So hopefully <laughs> I, insurance covered it. I thought he was some sort of recording vampire at first. It's like, just, it does not record. It, it just came, can't, doesn't work. It came out like a ransom note. Like, that's what it sounded like. It was, it was it awful. Came, like, uh, uh, is the, the horror. Oh, I don't, I don't remember the, the, uh, the, the, the torture horror guy. Uh, uh, you, you almost sound like the Crypt Keeper. Mm, okay. Like yeah. I, no. Uh, so, so you studied computer science. Um, and so we, like, I know you as Dave, the, uh, oh man, I always want to call it the other one. It's not the shopping thing. What was it? Mm, 
No categories. No things. Things, things that Dave oh, did. No things, places that. Dave, Dave worked at. Massive buying of things online. Uh, living social. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Oh god. So I I knew you as the living social slash GitHub guy, but there was obviously a pre Dave to that. So how did Dave get into programming to begin with, and why? Oh yeah. So um, my wife got pregnant. I was studying philosophy. The job prospects were. Um, <laughs> Well, either very uh, small or geographically challenging. All everybody I knew graduating with philosophy were like moving to places like Australia. So, um, started looking for a better, you know, something a little more permanent. A friend of mine, Step Amit, who is now here back in town after a long hiatus in Houston by way of Vancouver. Uh, he's CTO of Ready Rosie now. And uh, so Step actually got me my first computer gig at eInstruction, writing Windows installer scripts, which was, Neat. which is, it's, that's a, that's a good introduction <laughs> to computers. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and then pretty quickly after that, got into Java, uh, eInstruction had a Java product. And so learned Java, started coding that and um, just kept doing it. I was at eInstruction for about 10 years. Nice. And then had a couple gigs between that. And living social. Gotcha. So, so what? Um, so, did, were you at instruction whenever they like sold or were yeah or acquired or whatever the deal was? Yeah. So, instruction had been around a long time when I when I got there. They, had, I think, in the mid eighties. I think eighty five. What do they do? Just for listeners. So they they pioneered the clicker space in education. So, um, you know, it's, it was, think, think of PowerPoint before there was PowerPoint, you know, teachers get up in front of the class, they present content and the students can respond to that. And there are clickers at first, it was like RF clickers and the kids can, you know, give an answer and the teachers can gather responses in real time and Mm kind of see how the students are doing. So they did that for a long time. They developed, uh, very specific content for publishers. And then they developed a product that, so, so publishers would come to, to hypergraphics was the original name of the company. They would come to hypergraphics and ask them to develop content for a specific textbook. And so it was a lot of content development. And then they wrote a open platform so the teachers could, you know, like develop their own slides and their own content. And that product really took off. That's really what kind of exploded was the, the classroom performance system. So that's, I worked on that product for about 10 years. Cool. So, so they shut down and then, well, they, they got sold. They moved to, they, they got merged with the company in Scottsdale. I actually moved out to Scottsdale for a year, Oh, ran, uh, the development, the client development for a year in Scottsdale and then came back home and uh, got out of Scottsdale. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and then I got out of .NET programming and that, uh, I started working at Sabre and that was my first Rails gig. I'd been doing Ruby for a while. A lot of the scripting, most of the scripting I'd been doing for the last five years was in Ruby and I really wanted to get a full-time gig in Ruby because I really liked it. And so I was kind of tired of, you know, the whole Microsoft world. I, you know, there's a lot of good things about that. I mean, I like C Sharp. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff, but I was ready for a change. So yeah bailed out of that and found a full-time rails gig kind of kind of just rebooted completely out of 
Microsoft technology into more open source and Rails stuff and really found it really enjoyed, really took to it. A really, you know, pretty common story about that time. A lot of old dudes like me had been in Java for a long time, you know, attached to Rails and, and uh, you know, started over and really enjoyed it. So, so, I mean, Ruby was like a relatively new language compared to a lot of others. Right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a brand new. I mean, I started getting into it in about 04, and that was right before Rails, the first version of Rails came out. So it was kind of a this obscure little kind of a Python competitor um, that had a pretty small but enthusiastic community mm-hmm. around it. And then when Rails came out, it really it just took off and, it, and exploded. Yeah. There's always something. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so did you go, um, to, so after, uh, E instruction and you were in Scottsdale and you came back, um, you just kind of did like whatever gigs and then you ended up, uh, where'd you end up after that? So I came back from Scottsdale, worked at Sabre. There's a, there was a, an internal group at Sabre, um, called travel studios. They had a product called Tripcase, and they kind of operated as almost a startup inside of Sabre. It was just a small mobile and web development group. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of basically the whole team sat around a table just a little bigger than this. And uh, Tripcase did really well. I mean, we, it was it was fun. It was a very startup-y culture. Uh, got into mobile development on that team. Did some Android and BlackBerry, you know. And uh, that kind of got my you know, got me into the rails world. And then I, I left, I did a little consulting a little bit for a company out of Dallas called Parveda. And then, um, some friends of mine were working at living social and gave me a holler and asked if I wanted to interview. And <laughs> I did. And so, yeah, I was there for a little under three years. And so they're not based here. So you were a remote developer. Yeah. They were about half and half remote yeah. to on site. They're based out of DC still mm-hmm. are. Yeah. My friend is still there. They just got acquired by Groupon. So oh really? Yeah. I was kind of waiting for that to happen, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. So yeah, they're based out of DC, uh, about half and half remote to on site, similar to what GitHub was doing. I think to a large degree they were basing it on the success GitHub had had um, doing a similar setup where it's you know split remote on site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there. Um are you doing like financial, like working in financial? Well, at first, so I interviewed as a Rails developer. And then at the end of the interview, uh, the VP of engineering there, um, who I was interviewing with, found out that I did Android development. And so they promptly put me on the Android project. So <laughs> I spent my first year there rewriting the Android app. Uh, they had had a phone gap application that was their only Android project. Oh, that's the pinnacle of phone technology right there. <laughs> well, honestly. yeah. I, uh, at the time, it was a lot of people's <laughs> default framework, and it's still a good choice if you need something fast and you know you don't want to write a lot of native code. Yeah, you know, whatever the Apache version is called now, Cordova. Cordova, think, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did that. I ported their PhoneGap into a native Android app for about a year, and then I went back to Chad and said, "Hey, I I really like Rails. <laughs> can I <laughs> can I do some Rails?" So I did that. I worked on the uh, some mobile web Rails stuff, and then. Um, led the internal, uh, the finance team that did all the internal liabilities, like taking money from the vendors and paying commissions out to the salespeople. Uh, so 
There's a lot of service integration and stuff. It was fun. It was, it was a great experience. It was a great, great culture. It was kind of the heyday of the, the coupon boom. And so, we, you know, it was a lot of, there's a lot of good vibes at the time. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember, uh, when, uh, it was Groupon and living social were just, it was just like the pinnacle, like everyone was, you know, doing these things. Yeah. Uh, I was working at an indoor paint, paintball field at the time. And my boss was like a serial entrepreneur and he just loves starting new companies all the time. And one day I walked into work and he was like, I'm starting a new website. Right. And he knew, cause he knew I was going to school for that. I was like, what is it now? And he goes, it's going to be called doggone deals. It's just like living social. And it lasted for about a week. Yeah. There were <laughs> dozens of those. There were, there were many, many of those companies that came and went really fast. <laughs> I think Groupon and, you know, what was Living Social, the, the last, last, last one standing, I think. And Living Social got out of the coupon thing uh, a good year and a half ago. They, they haven't been coupons for a while now. Yeah. So after that, you went to Wellmatch, right? Yeah, I, I went to take over the engineering uh, of a, a similar situation to what was going on at Sabre. Aetna had an internal incubator had a small startup project that they wanted to incubate. Um, it was a really interesting, really difficult domain. It was uh, like price, think of it, price line for healthcare. It basically is what WellMatch was. Mm-hmm. Um, telling you, you know, where to get the best, you know, MRI for your blown out knee and <laughs> how much is it going to cost me and um, things that sound really boring but are technically actually really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I just you know, people I describe the problem, people glaze over yeah. unless you're actually in the industry. It just nothing <laughs> sounds more boring than healthcare. I feel like you got a couple of people and didn't hired over at Walmatch. Yeah, I Walmart actually Step who we were talking about who's CTO at Ready Rosie, I hired him on that team mm-hmm. and he left Wellmatch to uh, to go to Ready Rosie. Yeah, and then you also then, Jason as well. Yep. Jason Cartwright. Cartwright. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Brock Spratlin, who's not Denton, but he was from the area. Yeah. Uh, he's at Wellmatch now. He, I knew him from Paraveda. Yeah. So I brought him over. Cool. And then after that, you went to GitHub. Went to GitHub and was at GitHub for just uh, under two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So what'd you do over there? Well, it was, it, you know, I was brought on as, as a leadership, you know, GitHub is started off pretty flat. Mm-hmm. And well, you very, very flat. Um, and it worked really well for GitHub, you know, for most of their existence. And I think to some degree still does just because the product they did, you know, when you have developers writing the tools that they're using and solving the problems and using the tool that they're writing to write the tool that they're writing, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it's, you don't need a whole lot of product management, at least early <laughs> on, most of the feature set was really obvious, you know, well, not obvious, but, uh, once the idea took off of hosting Git and the particular abilities Git had, um, once the idea took hold of these really, really smart guys, you know, who saw the possibilities of this new source control, um, you know, the feature set became pretty clear and it was kind of like just a land grab to write those features as quickly as they could. So you didn't really need a whole lot of management. You didn't need, you know, typical product management, um, because, you know, there were, they all had really good intuitions about what features developers wanted to use. So it took off. So then they, they grew like mad obviously, and wanted to, um, you know, bring in some more, management to help that scale. You know, I think at the time they had 250 employees, I think about a hundred developers. And so that, you know, in the 
best of times that's that's tough to manage completely flat right to provide a common direction and and structure so so i was i was brought in as a group of managers and team leads and that sort of thing to help kind of experiment with how what structure might look like at github right cool so you went from one match to github to now space stuff so obviously the next thing to do was go to space yeah. <laughs> obviously yeah <laughs> There's been no thematic consistency to my career <laughs> whatsoever. Philosophy, music, coupons. Education, healthcare, coupons, <laughs> it's satellites, <Space>. whatever. <laughs> so now you work at one of our favorite local startups here in town, Cubos. Yep. And our favorite satellite startup, which most of us don't even like we think we know but we don't really know what Cubos what do you does. do what what is it that you do <laughs> i told my kids that i made software for satellites and they took that to me and i was making couches for spaceships <laughs> <laughs> at some point <laughs> my daughter caroline is like yeah you, he makes chairs and couches soft software <laughs> they're soft yeah soft, of course. the soft things on on spaceships yeah makes sense so so you went moved on to cubos and so what are you doing over there because before it was just they were just building SDKs for boards and yeah. And that's still really the core, you know, the core of it. I mean, what is Cubos? What is Cubos? The problem Cubos solves? Well, think of it. It's, we're trying to write an SDK that's common to most satellites. So Mm -hmm. the challenge in writing satellite software is all of these microcontrollers have different architectures, different APIs, and the typical satellite mission, you know, they start really close to the bare metal. Well, they start right on the bare metal, writing, you know, low-level bus drivers, UR, SBI, squared C. And they start from, like, straight off the board up to any kind of uh, controlling logic. That, and so that's a really bad way to write software. I mean, you shouldn't be, like, <laughs> rewriting that kind of stuff. So what we're trying to do is build, uh, you know, an API, a set of middleware, to make it a little more like you would write programs for Android, right? When you... When I write a program for Android, I don't, I don't have to talk to the the specific pin that gets the image off of the camera device. You know, I don't care. I just want camera dot take picture. You know, <laughs> image file. Uh, so that's kind of you know, roughly speaking, that's kind of what we do. We're trying to write an SDK that makes it that easy to write software for satellites and not duplicate all of this like very difficult programming. It's really hard. You know, it's tedious to write low level drivers every time. So right. um, we're trying to make an API that can abstract across a lot of different architectures and, and IOBCs, the boards that those controllers are sitting on. So yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's very fun. <laughs> and so for the past uh, 15, 20, 15 years or so, you've been doing just like almost all Ruby, right? Other than Java, starting Java and then, but for your past gigs, it's recently, it's been mostly Ruby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Since about uh, 2009 is all Ruby, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. With uh, a little bit of Java thrown in, it still comes up. It, yeah. It's, it will never die. <laughs> so, and we've talked, uh, I mean, you've told us about this a couple of times, but you were like, you know, fairly involved in like the Ruby community, right? So, going down to uh, Austin and going to... Yeah, yeah. The, as much as I could be. Yeah, conferences you know. and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how would you describe the, like the Ruby community, you know? Oh, very, I mean, it's what got me into it to begin with. It's a very quirky. Um, it's, uh, there's a sort of a creative oddball quality to the Ruby community 
from the beginning. I mean, like a lot of guys I read, uh, wise poignant guide to Ruby was what really got me into it. <laughs> right. And I mean, I didn't learn anything about Ruby from that book other than this guy is super funny, super smart and creative. And <laughs> this is unlike the other communities. Like at the time I'm writing windows installer, you know, I'm, I'm you know, mucking around in the registry and, you know, dealing with really tedious, pretty, um, mind numbing Microsoft stuff. And, <laughs> You know, Wise Pointed Guide was like it was like Monty Python. You know, it was like Douglas Adams. This is it was, it was funny, it was witty. It seemed completely wheels off. And um, his whole point of writing that way was to say Ruby can be like that. Mm-hmm. That Ruby is Ruby is the language equivalent of you know Monty Python or something, right? <laughs> it's whimsical. It's odd. You can do really strange things with it. I don't know how completely true that is, but but there was there was a kind of. Uh, you know, adventure to it. And it really, so yeah, I started writing really, really bad Ruby about <laughs> 2004. And by bad, I mean, it was just basically Java. It was camel cased Ruby that looked exactly like my Java classes. And it was, you know, I, a lot of the really cool stuff about Ruby, the Ruby magic and the metaprogramming and stuff took me a while to kind of get into that. And, uh, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, there, that's a pretty common story. I mean, you know, Glenn Vanderberg was real similar. He was pretty well-known guy in the Java community. And then he like flipped and went straight into Ruby and has been there ever since. And there's a, there's a, there was a lot of us that have been doing Java and and that sort of thing. Java, I think it specifically was what the Ruby community was kind of reacting against, not only the language, but the framework, Mm -hmm. um, J2EE and all of the heaviness associated with that in the early two thousands was really what the Ruby and the rails community was trying to, yeah, that's where the the trend was going against that. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, uh, I invited you to talk to come talk um, at Startup Weekend Denton two three years ago, something like that. And what you did is you got up there, you started talking about, uh, and like most people who like are listening to this right now may who don't know you uh, don't have never heard Dave talk about music and. Portland and uh, <laughs> okay, like yeah. programming and like communities and startups and things like that. Um, and you got up there and you were talking about how all these uh, things kind of like intertwined into how like Denton has been turning into this kind of like tech center, startup center. And it, that a lot of the things we have here are similar to other early uh, startup hubs. Yeah, right? for sure. Like those cities. So, I mean, how, how would you sum up like living in Denton and, and being a part of that? Like what, how would you explain it to our listeners? Well, I, I, you know, Denton has a really well-known music scene has for a long time. Um, a lot of that has to do with the, the music departments, one of the biggest music schools in the country. If not, if not the, I think Indiana might be bigger, but there's a lot of music students. There's a lot of creatives. They've got a big visual arts department too. Um, so there's a lot of students and the creative community around a college university like that is, is, but there's also this other indie music community that's kind of independent of the university. And for many, many years they've had, you know, Denton has cranked out a lot of really creative bands that, um, you know, pretty well known. There's a really tight knit, densely creative music community here. And one common characteristic of a lot of the technically the startup focused cities like Austin, Portland, Seattle, um, is that they're also, they also have that same demographic, right? It's the, 
the creative economy or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, Denton really hasn't had much of a tech or startup scene, but it had all the earmarks of a city that could produce one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the kids that start bands do so because they're creative and they're unsatisfied with, you know, sort of the typical career path that may or may not be available. And I think a lot of people get into tech and startups for the same reasons. They kind of, you know, want, want to do something that they have a little more control over and can see the results directly and be creative and, you know, change direction. And so, uh, you know, I think it appeals to the same. Um, so I, yeah, I think Denton has all, all of the, the classic earmarks of a, you know, a creatively focused economy where people, imaginative people solve hard problems <laughs> You know, and it's they do the same thing they do in a band. It's just people are willing to pay you a, a significantly larger amount of money than they will to plug your guitar in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's yeah. Denton's always struck me as as having that same same basic uh, basic approach. Portland's a big one. Um, Portland also has a really strong you know music scene, but they also have a pretty strong tech scene too. There's a, there's a large Ruby community there. There's Ruby conferences. New Relic is based out of there. A number of other startups. Um, they're they're a good bit bigger than Denton, but basically cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Um, demographically. If there was like one thing you wish we had in Denton that continues to like support this kind of community, or like if we're lacking something that we need to fill, like what what do you think that need would be for? The community on the on the economy, the creative side or the the economy side. Like, just if if your job, like if you worked in economic development and your job was to bring more startups in, right? What is the one thing that you would add that or fix or whatever the deal might be um, that makes that more likely? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I think Denton has to. <clears throat> so if you look at the classic city that does this is San Francisco and then South, you know, in the Valley. That's it's what we all look to as the example of, you know, the, the, the startup economy. It's, mm-hmm. it's San Francisco, it's Silicon Valley. There's a, there's just a number of different elements historically. There's no one thing that the Valley has that we don't. They have six to 10 things that we don't, which is, you know, Stanford and UC Berkeley and all of the historic tech companies that have been out there for decades, Xerox Park, and, you know, and now obviously like the big ones, Google, Facebook, Apple. So, so there's, there's, I mean, there's just things that you can't replicate that. Like you're not going to replicate the history. You're not going to like backfill the tech talent. You're not going to backfill the economy that has just thousands of jobs to support that. I think Denton has to do it on its own terms. And that's kind of what Tech Mill has been about from the beginning, I think. It's like, well, what does it look like to do something interesting here where you don't have, you know, a Stanford and a Caltech and a UC Berkeley and then all these big tech companies and this long history of tech talent out there and also a mentality and a ton of VC capital, you know, the 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 the, the capital density, like what Michael Kozierski talks about in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, we don't have those things. That doesn't mean, uh, but the, you know, for the same reason that bands pop up here, there's no music labels here. There's, there's no economic reason why bands should come from Denton other than creative people live here and want to collaborate. And I think that's, that's what Denton has. I, you know, if there was one big thing you could add here, maybe it would be like, uh, you know, 
oh, 15 years or so ago, I think Intel was thinking about building a, a plant just south of town. I mean, I think, you know, that would provide at least some stability for the tech talent to kind of churn through. If there were hundreds of tech jobs nearby, then you could sort of feed off of that. That would be part of it. But I think overall, Denton just has to do it on its own terms and bootstrap itself and have a different mentality, not expect to be, you know, to do startups for the same reasons they're done in the Valley, right? We're not looking at 100x returns on an 18-month, three-year cycle, whatever, right? That's just, that's not the kind of things we would do well. We have to be more garage band mode, yeah. bootstrapped, early profitability, sustainable growth, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, which I think is something that we're, like, Tech Mill is trying to help fix as well, is that, you know, we have, uh, we live in a college town, we have two universities and a community college and a giant school district, and all the people who, you know, graduate from those schools, like UNT, every, it's like 40,000 students, you know, a year. Um, and every year when those students graduate, 99% of them are either leaving town or they're, you know, moving, they're either leaving town or they're working here or, or living here and working out of town. Um, you know, they're driving to Plano or Dallas or Frisco or Fort Worth or whatever to go get work. And so um, there's also a lack of, kind of modern uh, technology, you know, education in the school. So, you know, when you go to school and like we've talked about this, like there's a, there's a reason that you learn foundations, which is fine. But, you know, learning, uh, I don't know, like really low, like, like C++ may not be the best thing for most people whenever you can teach someone Ruby, on the other hand, or some mobile applications uh, while they're going to school, for, you know, to help them, I don't know get up to speed with the rest of the industry, I guess to say. So, yeah, I agree. I think UNT is a, is an untapped resource there. I, I think it, you know, it's hard for a CS department. It's hard for an academic department to, to pivot too quickly. You know, I mean, the mm-hmm. syllabus is what it is. And like you said, foundational stuff is important. I think it would be really interesting. And that's something Marshall and I've talked about and, and you and I've talked about at TechMill is how to develop a, a, a tighter relationship with the university and, and, create that conversation because I, there are a lot of CS students over there that, you know, maybe there could be another track or a lecture series or something just to create a a larger awareness of what the market opportunities for certain kinds of skills, you know, maybe they want to learn about project management. Maybe they want to learn about architecture or they want to learn more, you know, you know, open stack, open source technology like Ruby or JavaScript, something that has a little more traction, in the job market than just Java and C, C, C++. Although those things are really good and important to learn. Mm-hmm. So I think some kind of intersection there, I think UNT is a big asset to what we're talking about. You've got all the raw materials, a lot of students, great place to live, cheap place to live. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a question of telling, you know, having that narrative take hold in people's minds. It's like, this is a great place to start a company. There's tech talent. Cubus has already leveraged UNT um, significantly. Um, we've already got some really talented engineers who really like working in Denton. Mm-hmm. They like, you know, some of them don't live in Denton, but they like driving against traffic. You know, <laughs> um, so it's a great place to start a company. I think it makes total sense. I think as part of what you know, what you know, our idea of, of Tech Mill to begin in, in the beginning was, let's create that story. Like you can live cheap. People like to live here. The kind of people you want to hire will like working here. It creates a creative environment. It's a small community. You know, it has, it's, you know, it's a great idea. So yeah, Cubus, we love it. I, I love working 
at Cuba. So I love being close to downtown. Um, you know, yeah. So <laughs> good ask for more. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I, I think you just have to, I think honestly, like the single biggest thing would be, you know, a company like Cubos or Ready Rosie or, or, you know, from the future or somebody having some kind of exit or creating some kind of profile, just, you know, significant large growth. Factually, e-instruction did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, e-instruction did blow up. They did exactly that. They hired, you know, dozens of developers over the years. I'm here because of e-instruction. Steps here because of e-instruction. Chris Morris is, is, you know, here largely because of e-instruction. He's the one that's still out at Living Social. So, I mean, just the success of e-instruction had side effects on the community that we're, you know, we still feel them today. So, you know, that wasn't a huge exit, but it was pretty significant. You know, it was a real startup bootstrapped, you know, they, you know, were handed off a couple of times for two different capital, you know, venture capital equity firms. And, you know, they, they did great. They invented an industry, you know, and, and those guys are still going, they rebooted with all in learning is still around. So, mm-hmm. you know, I like telling people, you know, don't forget the instruction is like largely responsible for us even having this conversation because <laughs> there's a whole lot of developers that wouldn't be here. And, um, so them growing and succeeding the way they did really kind of laid, you know, the template for what I think Denton can do. Like, that's it. Like, that's how you do it. You bootstrap it. You find a good idea. You just work your butt off for, you know, however many years it takes. And then, you know, profit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you have any questions? Well, and, and I'd never thought of it that way of the telling the narrative, but that <clears throat> telling people, hey, you can do this here. Because I think at least my viewpoint of the Dallas area is a lot less entrepreneurial than in Silicon Valley. You know, you start in your garage and that's not the mindset in Dallas. That's not what I was raised with. It's, hey, you go to college, then you find a job immediately. And so just showing showing kids uh and and they will probably fail but showing them Mm -hmm. that they can get out there and fail at a low cost of living when there's when they don't have kids and when it's the right time to do it is just that can just spark so many things and that's a i like that narrative thing i never thought of it that way but i like that a lot i think the starting place is similar to silicon valley i think there should be kids in a garage writing javascript um i just think you have to set your ambitions differently you know i think the lower is, you know, part of it, you know, not trying to say we're going to get a hundred X, we're going to rotate through 20 startups until I have that one pop and we get funded. And, you know, that's just not going to happen here, but like solve boring problems. Like, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's, that's something we don't really talk about a lot is that tech is capable of solving some of the boring problems people have. I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, opportunities for people willing to look at, you know, everyday problems, more standard mom and pop businesses or mid-sized business problems with the same technology and the same mentality, you know, maybe the returns aren't as big, maybe you don't become the next Facebook of blank. Right. But I think there's, you know, because the Valley mentality is so huge, like everything has to be, you know, you know, massive or nothing, right. That you don't, you don't think creatively about some of the more boring problems that you know, might have just as much or more opportunities. Um, even if the ceiling's a lot lower, it's a lot more realistic in a place like Denton, um, you know, to just think in terms of plain old business terms, how do I make money early? You know, <laughs> who has money, who has a problem that technology might solve, you know, instead of trying to invent something from whole cloth, 
you know, and be the next Facebook or whatever, or the next Uber, like, how do I make something slightly more efficient, you know? Yeah. So one of my, one of the reasons why I was so passionate about, uh, when I, when I left UNT, I was really passionate about going back and getting the students more involved in the startup tech community. And the reason was every semester or every spring they have, um, their design day, which is, uh, they've been working on their senior projects for all year for both semesters. Um, and this is their day to like get out and present it to like a group of random people. And the people who come out there, it's like, uh, other students who go out to Discovery Park, it's the professors who go out there, maybe the kid's family if they told them to come, and then like they try and invite other companies to kind of walk around and look at stuff. But most of the time, these kids are like, hey, I have this poster board, look at this thing I built, you know, as like a research project. But I walked through there, like I remember going to, when I was doing design day, I walked through and I was like, these are some projects that can make some real money, right? To them, it's a grade. But they don't think about it that way. They think yeah. about it as just a normal project, right? But they're building really important things that are like solving problems. And like it's very like it's very big possibility to be a commercial product, you know? Uh, and so I really wanted to like tell those kids, hey, by the way, you could do that and make money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? I've run into that story a few times, uh, you know. Kyle Parrott, you know, he's one of the developers over at Cubos. He had, I forget, he had some, uh, you know, service he had written as a, as a student. I think he wrote something at PHP. I don't even remember the specifics of it, but it was some dumb little thing where he had some recurring revenue Mm -hmm. and he had a business and he made money and learned how, like he went through the whole cycle of having an idea, coding it, making some money with it. It perpetuated itself and it taught him a lot. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of those opportunities if you just sort of shift your mentality a bit and say, you know, being Uber or Twitter or, uh, you know, Facebook or whatever, is this not in the cards for 99% of you, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the story's still out on them, you know, that, you know, we still don't know what that whole economy is going to end up with, mm-hmm. you know, in the large scheme of things. Right. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm more interested in, in, you know, smaller scale let's you know to what does what does technology do it makes things more efficient it makes boring things faster it makes you know tedious things you know quicker it gets things out of our way like find those inefficiencies in normal everyday problems and apply it um i think the reason people don't do that is because the the folks with that kind of talent tend to go for the startups and they move out to the move out to san francisco or or austin or whatever um, and the folks that don't tend to just go get a cube job typing Java out, you know, there's, <laughs> there's this big middle part where it's like, why don't you take that same skill set and do something, you know, creative and, and new, but not, you know, with a, you know, bootstrap early, make money early. Um, I think that's the kind of mentality that would work in Denton. It's the same mentality that goes into your average Denton band. I mean, most of the, the most famous Denton bands of all time, most people haven't heard of like, I don't know, Centromatic and Brave Combo and Midlake, but they're all really good bands. They're amazing. Creatively, they've, they've made a mark on the world. A lot of people do know about them. They can tour Europe, you know, so there is kind of this bootstrap mentality in, in, in the creative community in Denton. And I think that same mentality would apply to, you know, a tech, a tech based economy here. I, that's kind of what, you know, Ready Rosie's doing and Cubus is doing and, and the other folks in town are, you know, just trying to find, 
you know, some way of bootstrapping that and staying profitable early. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a different mentality. I think it, I think it has to be Denton is Denton. It's not Boulder. It's not San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, but that doesn't mean that tech doesn't can't and shouldn't play a, a really important role in how the town is shaped. Yeah, totally. Comments. <laughs> no, I think we're, I don't know how long we've been going, but for a while, Okay, yeah. So I no. think we're ready for you to awkwardly phrase. Oh, me? This. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Dave. Yes, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a, uh, a student or someone who is interested in philosophy and decided they didn't want to do that because it wasn't profitable and they wanted to get into programming. Mm-hmm. Farming. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they wanted to learn Ruby. Uh what what advice i mean just just in general like we've been talking about students this whole time and like what advice would you give to uh, any cs student out there like going to unt or going to or any any schools in the area like what yeah, would yeah. you tell or them or philosophy students or philosophy yeah. students <laughs> in that case what would you tell them right now like if they were wondering what they wanted to do well there's a, i mean there's there's a lot of ways to do it i think do something that you're interested in right um if if ruby interests you there's a ton of ways to learn it. Like just to go from, I don't know anything about Ruby to, you know, I can actually code, you know, there's, there's so much out there. I mean, there's so many tutorials. Um, there's also dev boot camps and stuff. So there's so many opportunities now that there weren't 15 years ago. So learning it is not the challenge. It's figuring out how to apply it and find a gig. Um, you know, for Ruby is a very specific skill that, I mean, honestly, even there's, there are a number of rails shops around here and and it it is popping up. It is still a good skill to learn, but it's, you know, you're probably going to have a bit of a bigger challenge. I would honestly say probably JavaScript, like getting started, like learn node, learn JavaScript. There's a bigger footprint for that in the job market. Uh, Ruby is still, you know, it's still a very marketable skill, but much more so in the startup cities like, you know, Mm -hmm. San Francisco, et cetera. Austin's, you know, still got a lot. Um, so, you know, get online, learn the tutorials, find some open source projects. I and mean, that's the other thing I would say um, is a really viable path, you know, on any language, Ruby, JavaScript or whatever, find some open source projects that look interesting and dive in. If if you're young and you've got the free time and this is something you want to do and you have the dedication, you want to like you'll never have the amount of time you'll have between age 19 and 27 <laughs> you know to spend ridiculous amounts of off hours writing free software for these open source projects and gain experience gain some networking get a feel for what the techno- what the landscape is like um put a put a github resume together basically your github account becomes your resume um and that that's an absolutely viable and that's available to anybody who wants to do it and if you do that and you put the time in it takes to do that, yeah, you can get a job in Ruby. You can get remote work. You'll get some freelance work. Um, and then I would say while you're doing that, write your own app. Like solve some problem you have. or a boring somebody, problem. A boring problem. <laughs> great, here's a great example of like, so a uh, buddy of mine, Jake Dempsey from Sabre, uh, his wife was on work was a consultant for one of these MLMs that have popped up and they didn't really have a mobile presence. So without their permission, he wrote an app 
that scraped their site, that scraped the HTML. They didn't even have like APIs or anything. They just went and got <laughs> the data straight out of the HTML. And at first they weren't that happy. And then later on, you know, the people he was selling this to were making money and it was a very useful app. And, and he did very, they finally came to him. It's like, all right, we want this to be the official thing. And, <laughs> you know, uh, Jake's a very smart guy. They did pretty well. As far as, I, as far as I know, it was a good story. So that's a great example of a really boring problem. Like that did not blow up TechCrunch. You know, like <laughs> nobody cares that somebody wrote an MLM mobile app, but it was a super great idea. Jake's a super smart guy using really cool tech tech to solve, you know, a quote boring problem, but it's not, not boring to him. <laughs> so find interesting problem, find a problem you have, find, find a problem that someone, you know, uh, you know, has, and even if it's, you know, your little brother can't do his algebra homework or whatever, like there's so many different ways you can apply tech and bootstrap your own project. That's probably the, the easiest way. And the most important way, uh, to learn the skill is to start from nothing start an app and finish it. That is absolutely the single best way to become a developer. Start something, finish it, deliver it to somebody, even if it's two people and, and figure out how they use it and improve it a bit. But, you know, getting that under your belt is like the single most important thing you could ever do. Kind of doesn't matter what the tech is, just build something and ship it. So I have one more question. I think advice you can give. So I've noticed the Dave trend which is about every three years, Dave gets a new job. <laughs> uh, for some reason, other like whatever the reason might My be. My mother-in-law is very worried. By the way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what, what advice would you give to someone who is, you know, maybe they're sitting at Fidelity writing Java right now, but they're like, man, I just, I want to, you know, work on Ruby stuff. Or I want to work on JavaScript. I want to build Node apps. Like, but I don't know where to go or like, I'm not sure what I should do, you know, like, like what advice would you give to someone who is looking for, who is like currently a developer, but is looking to do new opportunities? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of what I did. And on the side, I was getting kind of bored with C sharp and Java, nothing against C sharp and Java again for all you C sharp and Java does, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I, I really like C sharp actually. It's kind of a, fun mess, you know, but, uh, it, it actually wasn't at the time. The C sharp is way cooler now than it was when I, when I left it, I left like pre three, five, um, all the cool stuff came after. Um, but yeah, on the side, you know, you get interested in something that intrigues you, right? Like for me, it was Ruby, you know, I may not be Ruby for you. Um, but I liked it. I started learning it on the side. I'd go home and throw a console up and start typing in Ruby in the REPL. And I pretty much did that every night. And then I figured out I really needed to fig learn SQL. You know, that's, that's another piece of advice I would give. Learn SQL. <laughs> like, learn freaking SQL. That, that is universally an applicable skill. It will, it will distinguish you from about 75% of the other developers in the room. If you can really sling some SQL around, you know, that is a absolutely will always be a highly marketable skill. And it also gives you perspective on, you know, data and how to operate on data. But yeah, I did, I did that. I was like, I taught myself Ruby. Well, I didn't ta teach myself. That's not true. No one ever teaches themselves. I had Chris Morris sitting next <laughs> to me who already had, had learned Ruby and was an awesome developer. And uh, he would turn around and say, you know, hey, Dave, look, you can reprogram the plus sign in Ruby. And I was like, that sounds insane. And I, I was intrigued. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you know, at night, you just go home every night, do something new, learn something new 
put another wrinkle in your brain, do a little bit at a time. Every, you know, it look, every new thing feels huge until you get into it and just learn the next thing. Right. And then just do a little bit at a time, be systematic, get the fundamentals down. It's amazing how really complicated things become much, much simpler. If you just go slow and steady, just learn something new every night, open up a command line every night and do some one little thing new and just keep your brain engaged with it. And, you know, at the end of the year, if you keep doing that at the end of a year, you'll be amazed at what a, what skills you have and B, what random opportunities will pop up that you have the right answer for. Somebody will pop up in your newsfeed or your Slack channel saying, Hey, I need X. And you're like, I just happen to be doing that. You know, let's talk. (laughs) It's amazing how, you know, you got to play a long game though, but by long game, I mean, 18 months, two years, like keep Mm -hmm. teaching yourself interesting new things. And when those weird opportunities come out of nowhere, you know, uh, you, you know, you're, you're ready to say, yeah, I'd love to take a look at that. Well, cool. Well, uh, if anyone on the internet world wanted to reach you, how would someone do that? Um, yeah. Email (laughs) is, is still, still around. I think, uh, my email is D A V S I M S at gmail.com. And it's, it's Dave without an E and I, I spell it out because there's a really nice gentleman in Australia who will in fact forward Dave Sims with an E. <laughs> We've become really good friends over the last 10 years or so. Uh, How polite of him. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a, we have a now we now we have a club of Dave Simses because I'll get some and he'll get some. So we actually know who most of the Dave Simses on Gmail are because eventually they end up in one of our inboxes. And uh, so we'll say, yeah, I got another one. So we're going to form a, a, a society at some point. <laughs> Is it safe to say that we can also find you at any music venue around town? No. No. Any bars? I heard you favor Pascal's. I like the Pascal's. Yeah. I like the Pascal's. I like the Dan's. You know, I'm a dad. I don't I don't get out all of that <laughs> much. It's not a, not a nightly occurrence. But yeah, I, I, I've been known to have a cocktail. Well, if, uh, listeners, if you see a silver fox uh, with a hoodie on <laughs> at Dan's or Pascal's. <laughs> I could sound like I'm Kenny Rogers or something. <laughs> uh, then definitely uh, give Dave a hug or something. So. <laughs> Is that Charlie Rich or Dave Sim? <laughs> uh, all right. David, anything else? Nope. All. All, all, all great wisdom. <laughs> well, I think that's probably good. Uh, cool. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, this uh, is fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love those super yeah. enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> that, that came out wrong. I, was like, <laughs> I knew it was. A, yeah. Yes. That's that what we're looking awesome. for. <laughs> all right. Well, this was the Techmo Podcast. So uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And Josh would say, smash that like button. Uh, we do this every two weeks. So uh, I guess that's it for today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Can you hear? How can you? Is it sound pretty good? <clears throat> yep, cool. it sounds alright. Cool. Uh, so as long as you're just within like, I don't know, mm-hmm. that much. You know, yep. you know. <laughs> <laughs> how do mics work? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you held a guitar once in your life. <laughs> just the one time, though, right? <laughs> they took it away. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> uh, okay. Okay.